Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Obviously, it's something that it would be great to, you know, I guess that's kind of what uh, maybe every rookie's goal is at the beginning of the year, you know, to be rookie of the year, uh, you know, aside from winning the Stanley Cup, which would be obviously number one. But, you know, if it happened, it'd be, it'd be great, and I'd be, I'd be, you know, really proud. All right, James, we have another big guest on the podcast today. He is Mike Johnson, former Leaf. And I actually just, James, I'm not even going to let you talk. I just want to ask Mike a question straight up. Uh, So, Mike, I was doing some research into your career. Um, You came up right after finishing at Bowling Green. Do you remember, like, what that first, like, week or first game was like going from, like, university to playing with, like, Matt Sundin for the Leafs? Yeah, it was It was hectic. It was hectic. I, I remember it pretty well. I, I finished up on Friday night. We got pounded by Michigan. My career ended. <laughs> and Jason Botterill and Brendan Morris and the boys put an end to our career. And then um, I was under the assumption that I was going to sign on Monday. And I decided I was going to go to Toronto and worked it out. And um, So I went out on Friday night as though my career ended with my buddies and my teammates. And we had a typical college end of career kind of night which lasted until the sun came up. And I remember getting a call about 9.30 in the morning, which was not that early, but it felt really early. And it was my agent, Pat Morris, who said, listen, um, you know, Toronto wants you to come down, sign today and, and go down to play. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I've been asleep for maybe an hour. What, what are we doing here? And uh, yeah, I bombed right down to Tampa, played my first game on Sunday night, um, flew back to, to, to Ohio, went back to Bowling Green, Drove back up to Toronto and played my first game in Toronto on Wednesday. And it was a whirlwind. And the thing that you got to remember about the era then is that because there was no, I don't even know there was center ice, there was no internet. Like, I didn't know anyone. I couldn't watch the Toronto Maple Leafs when I, when I lived in Ohio. They weren't on TV. So I knew almost nobody on the team. I, I not even knew. I never even heard of a lot of guys on that team. So it was walking in completely blind and just kind of going with it for about five weeks I think I played 13 games and then finished up and went back to to Bowling Green and and took my final exams and and graduated on time but it was a whirlwind for sure probably made a little bit easier because I was from Toronto so you know I kind of knew at least how to get around and and where the rink was and if I wanted to I'd go to my parents house and get dinner I wasn't completely blind heading into a new city do you have any like memory of what it was like to like walk into the dressing room that very first time and just like look around? Well, I do, but because the first Saturday or the day I played, I guess it would have been a Sunday, the team had played the night before in Miami. So it was a morning optional skate. Only the guys who weren't playing were on the ice. Mm-hmm. And it was like, geez, Jeff Ware, Mike Craig, Marcel huh. Cousineau. I remember walking in going, I don't, 
I don't know who any of these people are. Like I, I'd never even heard of one of these guys. And I was like, this is so strange. So it was like not intimidating because I didn't know anybody. Um, so I just kind of went through it quickly. The first thing I remember kind of being weirded out about was when I walked in for the game and I went, you know, through the training room and got my stuff hung up. And there was Wendell Clark on the training table huh. getting worked on by Chris Broderick. So I'm like, ah, this was Clarky. He's getting his back work done. Of course, what else would he be doing? But that was kind of the moment you're like, oh, okay, that that's kind of neat because I, I did grow up with with Wendell being a star in Toronto. But um, yeah, maybe my lack of familiarity with the team was probably helpful to me. Your uh, Mike, your hockey DB says you're from Scarborough. Is that that accurate? That is 100% accurate. Yeah, born and raised in Scarborough. Um, yeah, my whole life I lived in two houses, in Agent Court and then in the Scarborough. I went to high school for Johnny McDonald in, in Scarborough and uh, yeah, all the way, straight through. What uh, what was your path like? Like, like you, you didn't get drafted, but obviously, um, I mean, you went on to have some really big seasons and a pretty good career for a guy who wasn't drafted. What, what happened around the time you were, you were draft eligible and why do you think you weren't picked? Because I wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know what it was, guys, is like... So I, I was in, incredibly late to puberty and to grow. I went into high school. I was not five feet tall in grade nine, literally. Um, when I got my license in grade 11, I was 16. My license was 159 centimeters. I was 5'3 in, in, in grade 11. So the OHL was not a thing for me. Like none of it was ever a consideration. I played AAA hockey until through grade eight. And then grade nine and 10, I... Uh, I played single A hockey. I played in the in the SHA, the Scarborough Hockey Association. I was small and I was just playing for fun. And uh, eleven and twelve, I played double A hockey. And so I never played hockey at a high level in the years where you might be considered for the OHL draft, presumably, or even the NHL draft. And the only reason I tried to get a scholarship was because my sister was a by far the best athlete in our family. Um, had gotten a soccer scholarship down to Florida. And so I just figured if she could get one, I would get one. I tried to get one down to Bowling Green and um, eventually got one there. So I, I never was drafted. I don't blame the scouts. I wouldn't have drafted me either. I was I was no good. I was like six foot one, 150 pounds when I went into university and not much of a hockey player. So um, it just worked out that the timing for me was good in that I didn't get drafted because when it came to having a chance to turn pro, I was able to pick my team so that I picked a team that needed right wingers and that was not very good. And that was Toronto. It helped that I was from Toronto, but mostly they were not good. And that was a you're, good thing for me. You're always so, so self-deprecating. Most players are kind of like over the top talking about their career and how good they were and all. And you're the complete opposite all the time. I didn't, <laughs> well, uh, I, I wasn't good. I mean, like <laughs> I was playing single A. That's a step above house league in high school. I mean, like that's, that's, you know, as generic as you can get. I mean, by the time I got through university, I turned into a pretty good player. Um, and I was a fine player in the NHL. But yeah, my path was abnormal because I was I was not a hockey fanatic in high school. I, I love basketball. I played basketball every day, even though I was short. I played basketball every day in high school. That was my favorite sport. Well, so Mike, like when you get into the NHL, what are you, like what's your confidence level? Because you come right in and like immediately you're an NHL player. Uh, first full year. I don't know how you finished fourth for the Calder. You should have finished higher. Like the guys ahead of you, how did Patrick Gilyash beat you out? I, I don't get that. But like, what Talk was your? To do you my remember mom like, right now? You're just, <laughs> she was devastated. I never forget. 
Like when I when so I, I think I I tied for the league in the lead in scoring for rookies. Yeah. Um and 47 I had like, points. I think LA Patty had like 36 points. So I mean I had 30% more points or whatever it was, not very high numbers, but still percentage-wise, way more. Um mm-hmm. I'm not saying he didn't turn into a way better player and had a way better career, but that's not what they're voting on, even though he was younger than me. But my mom heard that I wasn't a finalist and she called me and was beside herself. <laughs> Michael, what is this? I'm like, I, mom, I can't help you. Like, it sucks. I mean, what am I going to do? It was disappointing. Even though I knew I wasn't going to win, I still would have liked to have been a finalist. But um, for me, I think what helped me was that I was always pretty capable playing away from the puck so that right away, uh, Mike Murphy was my coach. And I think he recognized that even in moments where I wasn't scoring, to the level that he wanted me to or that I wanted to, I could still play. And so that he could hmm. still trust me. And, and I think that allowed me just to play right away. I never had to go to the minors and figure out how to be able to stay in the lineup. I never had to, you know, be a healthy scratch and kind of watch from above. I was 22 when I started. So I looked at it as like, I'm kind of a finished product. I mean, I always want to improve, but like, this is kind of who I'm going to be. I, you know, either I'm good enough or I'm not. And, and I think, because I could play away from the puck, that allowed me to work through some of the ebbs and flows of the offensive game, which was harder to come by at the NHL level. Was uh, was playing for the Leafs and playing for your hometown team was it was it what you kind of hoped and dreamed it would be, or what, like mm. what, I, I can't imagine that must be such a strange experience to go from your high school hockey and you don't think you're gonna yeah. go anywhere in your career, and then then you're playing for the Leafs like four or five years later. Like what what was the experience as a whole? What was it like? It was great. I mean. Um, you know, I, I think it was, it was a lot of fun for me, my, my friends, my, my, my buddies I grew up with, like they certainly were along for the ride and we like to go to the games and go out afterwards and enjoy that whole part about being a young person in Toronto who played for the Maple Leafs. It was, it was a lot of fun, but almost more than that. I mean, I think my parents and, you know, our close family friends, my aunts, uncles, you know, those, the families that are not really related, but they're like your relatives. I think they enjoyed it almost more than I did because they took <laughs> such great pride in like being able to come and watch. And like, my dad's like, my son plays for the Maple Leafs and, and, you know, I didn't do terribly and our team turned out to be pretty good. And, um, I think really to have my family who put so much of their, my parents of their lives into my sister and I sports, um, you know, it's all we did. That's all they did. And they loved it. I mean, they came, my parents came to every one of my senior season games in Bowling Green, except for the ones in Alaska. Like they went to every single game, home and road. They loved uh-huh. it. It was such a big part of their lives. So the fact that they could continue that in person was um, was great for them. And that made it great for me. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it was it was pretty cool. And the other part was that I played for the Marlies when I was like 10 and 11 years old. So I got to practice at Maple Leaf Gardens. So to, to fast forward, you know, 10, 12 years later and to be playing at Maple Leaf Gardens, it was, it was, you know, every now and then you'd have a moment thinking it's pretty cool. What I, what I've been able to, to, to do um, as a Toronto kid to, to play for the Leafs. Mike, I was curious um, if you had a favorite Ty Domi story. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, God, there's so many, um, <laughs> you know what? To, Ty, to his credit, like he, he, you know, he was a larger than life personality, but I, a little side notice Ty was is, is like very kind and like very supportive you know he wouldn't want people to see that because he had the you know the brash kind of crazy fighter arrogant persona but like he would pull you aside and, and ask how you're doing and offer to help you out whether it's 
finding a place to live or whatever it might be. Just, you know, he was, he was actually very nice when you, when you had a chance to sit down, talk to him. I remember one time, I don't know what we were doing. It was a drill or I don't know. I don't think I played with him hardly ever in my careers, but we're doing a drill and he's like, Hey, Johnny, Johnny, listen, just go back door. I'll be running your tape. I'm like, excuse me. He's like, dish and magician, man, dish and magician. I'm like, <laughs> what are you talking about? And he, he prided himself on his passing ability. So I'll never forget dish and magician. He'd call himself and uh, guaranteeing <laughs> that the puck would be right where I wanted it. I don't know if it was, but for the sake of the story, I'll, I'll say that it was. Not to uh, not to move away from the Leaf stuff entirely, but what what happened when when the trade happened? Like, was that what was oh, that was moment brutal. like for you? Oh, it was terrible. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm old enough now. Like, I, I see. I remember when Ryan Smith was traded from Edmonton, and he had that very tearful press conference at the airport. Yeah, and I was always of the mind like don't let them see that you're upset. Like, don't give them the satisfaction that it bothers you that much. Like, move on to the next place and say to hell with the guys who just traded you. And so, you know, that was certainly how I wanted to deal with it publicly. But I was I was really upset. I mean, I didn't want to leave Toronto. Team was good. I didn't think of that. Like, I hadn't heard that I was rumored to be dealt. So it was a bit of a shock. And I remember the day it happened. Um, I think it was the first game post-All-Star break. And I was having my pregame nap. Usually, I don't answer the phone but the phone rang it's pat quinn and, and the verbatim this is what he said hey mike hi pat listen um we made a trade involving you um you're going down to tampa you know to get a good player we got to give a good player thanks for all you've done so someone from tampa will contact you good luck and we appreciate it take care goodbye huh. it was that fast and yeah. I, I was like rubbing the sleep out of my eyes and what just happened is this for real i hung up the phone and I could not, for the life of me, remember what team I got traded to. <laughs> I swear to you, I'm like, did, was Boston? I, I, I just did not know until I, I got right away. I called my parents. I called my buddies. I called my agent. Uh, I called my girlfriend. I called everyone. And nobody answered the phone. Not one person. <laughs> they were all working. It was the middle of a Tuesday work day. And so I sat there for what seemed like an eternity. It was probably 20 minutes. Just reeling not knowing even where I was traded, waiting for some somebody to call me. I didn't even know who. And so finally went down to Tampa. And I mean, you think about how opposite end of the spectrum in every sense the word Tampa was versus Toronto as far as like the city, the <laughs> culture, the, the team was awful in Tampa back then. They just drafted Vinny, just got Brad Richards on the team. Um, you know, they were really not uh, the, the kind of organization that they are now. So all of it was different and all of it probably took me a little bit to get used to because I was, I was upset. And that, the whole idea that you have this romantic notion of sports, you know, you want to, you know, you give your, your, your best, your heart and your soul to the team because that's what you want to do. And you feel like they're giving it back to you from the fans and from the organization. It's all together. And then just like that, when you get traded, I, I personally, at least like that entire idea, that bubble was burst forever. It's a business. I'm a piece of meat. I'm an asset that they will manage whatever way is best for them. They don't care about me personally. They just care about their hockey team. And I'm okay with that, but it was just kind of a stark realization. Like, yep, yeah, that, that's it. And, and it was that way the rest of my career. Well, did, before... Uh, I was ahead, gonna James. say, do, 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 do you know why they traded you? Was it just that Tampa really wanted you? Or do you have an idea <laughs> of why why that happened? Well, I mean, no, I know. I, I mean, I, I don't. Darcy and I were similar but different mm -hmm. players. Um, I imagine they probably wanted someone more physical. And, and Darcy Taco certainly was that than I was. 
Um, and he had a really good career. I mean, when I tell people now, especially anyone kind of under 30, that uh, I play for the Leafs, they're like, I don't remember you. I say, do you remember Darcy Tucker? <laughs> oh, I love Tux. He's the best. I'm like, I was traded for him. They're like, oh, okay. Huh. You must have been okay too then. I'm like, oh, I guess so. But um, yeah, I mean, I think probably physicality edge. I mean, they were looking to make another run in the playoffs the year prior. We'd gotten to the conference final. Um, maybe they felt they needed a little more grit or something along those lines. Um, so that was why I'm not sure. No one's really ever told me, but if I had to guess, that would be it because our production was kind of the same. I was probably better defensively. He certainly was um, more physical and more of an agitator. And and he was great. He played great there. So you can't say that it was a bad trade for Toronto. Well, Mike, I wanted to ask you about that that conference final. I was talking to Brian Berard the other day, and he said like he thinks – I don't know if you thought this at the time, but like maybe you guys as a group look past Buffalo. Did you like, did you feel that at all? That like maybe you were overconfident? Um, I don't know about overconfident, but like there might've been the stars are aligning for us because first round Philly yeah. and they had what? No Eric second round Pitt. They had no Mario third round buff. They started without any Dominic. Hashik. Yeah. So the fact that the first name bases every player that wasn't playing, you're like, my goodness, it's it's right there for <laughs> us. Uh, but we lost we lost the first game with Dwayne Rolson in net <laughs> and Cujo, who had been you know by far our best player all year long, just incredible that year. Um, you know he, his play dropped a little bit in that Buffalo series, but I think it was more one of those ones where you know, and I always say you don't need to lose to learn how to win. I don't believe that, but I do believe we had so many young players on that team that were just kind of going through it for the first time that I don't know if we understood the opportunity that was right in front of us, um, you know, between Alan McCauley and Steve Sullivan and Markoff and Caberlet and, and me and Freddie Modine and Todd Warren. Like we had a lot of guys who were, you know, early twenties, just starting out and had not really been through that NHL kind of grind. And I think that to me more than overconfidence, it was more, I don't know if we appreciated the moment, and embraced how rare it was. I never got to the conference finals again, my entire career. Um, but you just, that kind of assumption like, oh, it's fine. We'll be here all the time because we're a good young team. So that in in hindsight was maybe the sentiment we should have changed is just appreciate the moment because uh, they're fleeting. And then uh, you didn't get back to the playoffs again until Phoenix. No. Well, you know what? I, I look at my career, James, and I'm like, I was a, like maybe a bit of a tweener, like on a, on a bad team, I was certainly a top six player, sometimes the best player, uh, but on a really good team, I might've been a third line player. And so place I kept getting traded to when I got traded to Tampa, I was traded as a top six guy, but they weren't very good. I got traded to Phoenix to be, you know, a bit of a top six guy, but they weren't very good. Um, and so I didn't, you know, I didn't make the playoffs until whatever the few years later in Phoenix again, we made it and, and bowed out in short order to, to San Jose. Well, so Mike, you mentioned you don't think you need to lose to win. So to bring it back to the present for like one second, do you not like there's no part of you that thinks like this leap team has to kind of go through these things to figure it out? Um, I mean, I, I there's obviously you can learn things, but I don't think you have to. Like, I think you can learn things while you go through it and in fact win. Like had they won game seven two years ago. Um, they, did they have to lose that game seven to somehow be able to potentially win last year's game seven? And yeah. what did they learn la- two years ago if they didn't do it last year? I mean, I just, it's, yes, of course, there are, there's always positives to experience and good and bad. And, but, and, and the Leafs team 
presumably would be, have been better prepared last year than they were the year before. I just don't believe you have to. Like somehow you're incapable of kind of get, getting there unless you have lost in, you know, prior for a year or two or more. I, I just, um, and maybe I'm naive. I never won a Stanley Cup, so maybe I don't know as much as I think I do. But I just think that if, if you if you are able to to learn as you go and have that kind of maturity, and if you've had other moments in your life, whether it's internationally or in junior or in college or whatever, then then no, I don't think you have to necessarily lose to win at the NHL level. You uh, you played in a lot of. You mentioned sort of the non traditional markets you were in. Do you do you like? Do you have fond memories from those years in in Tampa and and Phoenix and or like like how do you how do you look at the like the NHL being in those places and, and what it's like being a player there? Um, yeah, I mean, I think so much of your experience and how what you reflect on your time places is just about how you played. So mm. Tampa, who I actually did all right in Tampa. I didn't like playing in Tampa, Tana. You know, the organization, the city, the the culture around the city, it, it was just so different for me. Um, I didn't love it, but I love playing in Arizona. And, um, you know, my kids were born when I was down there. I had my best years when I was down there. It's a great place to play and live. And I, I was okay with, you know, having experienced a bit of the pre-internet fishbowl in Toronto, which was a lot of fun and I loved it. Um, I was okay just kind of going to a place where people might not know you every time you go to the grocery store or whatever it might be. And, you know, I'm playing in front of 14,000 fans instead of 18,000 fans. Like, um, you know, it, it was fine. It didn't feel like less of an experience. In fact, I really enjoyed it. Now, having said that, I loved Toronto and I loved playing for Montreal. So I liked playing those other markets as well. But I wasn't put off by the market. Uh, being non-traditional, more just whether the city kind of vibed with my personality and, you know, how well I was doing individually. Well, what is that 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 experience like? Because we, we, we have a lot of guys, obviously, from Toronto who play for the Leafs now. And I, I just remember as you were talking, like talking to Travis Dermott about playing here. And he's like, there's nothing bad about it. I love it. But I do have to feel like there is some part about it that's a little like, there are days you just don't feel great and you just want to walk to the grocery store and not talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. Like, did any part of that, like, was, was any part of that hard? Like if you had a bad game the night before and like you might bump into someone, like did, did any part of it rub you the wrong way? Not too, too much. Um, not too much. I mean, I think the biggest, you know, you also reflect again, no internet. So the only time people saw your face <laughs> was on TV when you played, right? There was no other way for people to see you. I mean, there might be a picture yeah. in the paper, but like, you know, people didn't know what I look like huh. so much. Like they might know what like Zach Hyman looks like. Like I bet Zach Hyman can't go anywhere without someone saying, hey, that's Zach Hyman. Whereas, you know, it wasn't quite like that. So, um, and I was, while I was a good player, you know, I wasn't the best player in Toronto. Matt's took so much of the burden for the media and everything else, of which there was also a lot less of back then. Um, so, no, generally speaking, I didn't find too much of it. I lived in an apartment back then, so you had the privacy. I imagine if you had a kids and lived in a house and people were knocking on your door, or you're picking your kids up at school and, um, you know, somebody's got something to say about, you know, the, the breakaway or the bad penalty or the bad turnover, <laughs> like that would certainly grow taxing. Um, if you had kids and like somebody at school was like, hey, your dad sucks, like that would be upsetting. But I didn't have to deal with any of that. I, I generally didn't mind it. And the other part about playing in Toronto that, you know, can happen is you get part of a lot of 
rumors about trade rumors and stuff. And I did not enjoy that part of our business. I struggled with that, um, you know, or, or weighed heavily on me, but I didn't get much of that in Toronto. So I didn't, that, that part didn't bother me. I imagine that would be, you know, probably a bit of an issue that would bother me now more than anything is just kind of the constant chatter about, you know, your role or if you're safe or trade or whatever it might be, that would probably and get now you're one of the people that's, that's doing that on the airwaves every day. <laughs> wait a second. Wait. Uh, I wait for people to tell me the rumor and then I react to the rumor. You give me the information. I'll give you my opinion on it. I am very, I, I joke because like, you know, I, I've had moments where I've had inside information, insider type information. And, and I don't want to, I don't want to say it. I don't like, I don't want any part of this role because it, it opens up a whole can of worms. The relationships I have with people in the game I have as a, as a former colleague or former teammate. And, you know, I don't keep in contact with everyone I once played with. So if, so if, you know, a former teammate of mine was about to get traded, like, it'd be weird if I just called up and say, Hey, what's going on? Anything to tell me? Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I don't want that. And I remember I was talking to Shane Doan one time and when he was still playing and he was about to get suspended for one of the elbows that he gave. And, and while I was talking to him, the league called him on the other line. So he's like, hang on. I'm like, sure. He comes back and I'm like, yeah, he got, uh, he got spent for two games. I'm like, are you sure? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, can I, can I tweet that? He's like, yeah, go ahead. It's I'm like, are you sure it's two games? Like I didn't want to get it wrong. And I'm talking to the guy who got suspended. It's just a whole nother world that insider stuff. And um, yeah, I, I, I try to steer clear but of that. When you bit. played in Toronto and you're saying you didn't like kind of the media attention, was there any seed planted there, you think, for where you ended up now in, in the media role? Or like, did, did you find it interesting or or was that something that, that came later? No, I didn't. I didn't. I, yeah, I don't know if I misspoke. I didn't mind the media mm. attention. I didn't mind. I don't. Hopefully the people that were around, I didn't mind talking to guys and, and being available and doing interviews and stuff. Um, I just know for some guys it can be it can be a lot. Um you know what I did during my career? I don't know why I did, but um, you know how sometimes TSN would would bring current players in to do playoff panels, and I did that a couple times during my during my career, and and it was interesting. It was fun. And during the, geez, one of the years where I had my shoulder surgery, I was out for a long time. I did some stuff on the score and did did a trade deadline there, and it was fun. It's sports, and so I don't, you know, I have a degree in finance. I had no interest in communications or media uh, heading in university, but um, you know, it's, it's hockey and it's talking hockey. So it was fun. I don't know if that is a function of me being around the media here. It was just um, something I kind of stumbled into. And, and then once I started, it was, it was enjoyable. One thing that that's kind of come up, Mike, just being or going through this, this pandemic is James and I have been doing like a lot of like looking back at history and kind of looking back at Leafs teams of old and one thing that that's come up is is Sundin, obviously. And sometimes like myths and legends are kind of built, but it it kind of seems like, at least from everyone I've talked to, that the the Sundin thing. Uh, I don't know how to explain what I'm trying to ask. I guess that it, it seems legitimate, like that's he was really beloved and like really did all those kind of things that you maybe thought he did. Like, what's like your favorite story or memory of, of Sundin? Like, is all that that kind of hype of him as a captain and player and all that stuff? Was it is it as real as, as it kind of seems like it was? Uh, in my eyes, it is. Absolutely. So two things kind of stand out. One kind of the, just the general Matt's the way he he kind of carried himself. So like, you know, I played with Matt's much of my rookie year. I'm sure he yeah. was thinking uh, this kid who's 22 has <laughs> never played. Like 
I'm not his preferred line mate. Like he's watching other guys play with superstar talents and I'm not one of those guys. So maybe at some point he's thinking like, I can do better. They got to give me something better than this. No <laughs> salary cap back then. They give me somebody. But the great thing about Matt is he never once, not in the entire time I was there, ever once made you feel like you were not um, good enough to play with him or he was disappointed that you didn't, you know, put a goal in that he set you up for or you didn't get a pass through to him. Like he never, and he could have, and he would have been right to. Like whether it's roll the eyes, shrug the shoulder, shake the head, or say it right to your face. Like, what the hell? He never did that. And I think for the guys that got to play with him and got to be around him, that was that was instrumental because it would have been easy to shake our confidence because we knew. Like if you're asking, like I'm not, I'm not anywhere near his level on at anything. And you know, he's kind of saddled with playing with players like me, but he did it with grace and 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 kindness. And and I thought like I think that's that's just a great quality that he had for everyone. And the other thing is that, you know, Matt's he wasn't a raw, raw guy. Like he wouldn't scream and yell. He wouldn't, wasn't big for locker room speeches very often, but he showed up every day and he just did the work. And for those teams, you know, following in Doug Gilmore's footsteps, like there's a lot of work, you know, a lot of media, a lot of charitable stuff, a lot of pressure. And every day, whether the team was good or bad, he'd go out there and he'd talk and he'd answer questions. He'd go out and play 22 minutes, get all the tough matchups offensively, defensively. And on a Saturday night where the game would end and I'd be like, all right, let's go boys. Tomorrow's <laughs> off. Let's, let's get out. Uh, I'd walk through the Air Canada Center dressing room, as you guys remember, and I, I'd go out the back door past the weight room and there would be Matt's after a game where he's just lugged the team on his back, lifting weights, doing squats, riding the bikes, you know, years before it was commonplace that guys would do that. And I just think, you know, he drew so much respect because he was so consistent in the work he put in every single day. You knew what you're going to get on the ice. You knew the kind of person you're going to get off the ice. And I think because he was that and because he was he was good at those things, um, you know, everyone that was around him respects him so much. See, that kind of reinforces for me, Mike, like I always kind of felt he was a little underappreciated here. And I don't know if you ever felt that or feel that, but I don't know, like he. It, it never felt like he totally got the city yeah. wrapped its arms around him like they did with Clark or Gilmore. Do you know what I mean? If, of course I know what you mean. Exactly. And I mean, I think there's, there's probably two parts. Well, a few parts to that one is that, you know, not until late in Matt's career, did they kind of have success 99 and it was an Oh two. They made the conference finals those two years. Um, whereas Wendell and Dougie were part of that 92, 93 thing. I think the fact that Dougie and Wendell are kind of, uh, Canadian kids who played a very Canadian style. And I think there's something about Toronto and I don't really quite understand this, even though I grew up in a maybe gritty part of Toronto, like the way that Maple Leaf fans just really, really love the kind of, they want good players, but also like the heart and soul and tough and kind of, and physical guys, they, they, they appreciate almost more than just the straight skill kind of guys. And, and I think he, while Matt's was very tough and very strong, all the rest of it, he didn't kind of have those emotional outbursts that Wendell and, and Dougie might have. And I think, yeah, that all kind of factored into the, to him maybe being embraced, but not beloved to the same degree those other two guys were. I don't know if you saw it on our site, Mike, but it was like three or four weeks ago, we ran a survey of Leafs fans and we asked, well, who was your favorite Leaf all time? And I was shocked when it came back and it was something like 40% of people picked Matt's. So I wonder if it's just, Maybe there's like a certain subset of the fan base or a certain age bracket where people fall. But he blew away Gilmore and Clark, where mm -hmm. I was expecting one of those guys to win the polling. So, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to demographic uh, your your site, but I imagine <laughs> yeah, more young people. Yeah, 
Well, you that's hardcore on those things and the older generation that loved Matt's and or loved Wendell and Dougie in the eighties and nineties. Yeah, it's it, I I think it but but I, I guess maybe he was more appreciated and like those yeah, people just aren't aren't the loudest. Maybe I don't know. Sometimes I think in Toronto there's these people that criticize whether it's Matt Sundin or Kyle Dubas or whoever, and these loud voices are actually a minority of the people who actually care about the team. No, but James, I think Mike's right. Like you go, I'm even thinking different sports. Like John McDonald, we did a story on him recently. He was, he got like the loudest cheers at the Skydome and he wasn't very good. Like he was barely a 200 hitter, but people loved my um, John McDonald. And I think there's a lot of that uh, blue collar kind of mentality in the city. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, they're just, they're not subscribing to The Athletic, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> After this podcast, they will. Uh, Mike, um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, your your career in media and your path. And like, what what is it about about the job other than obviously you're talking about hockey? What is it about it that, that you enjoy so much and that you've gravitated so much? And like, what, what stands out to you as a you know, maybe like a pinch me moment or one of your favorite moments in, in, in this role? Um, well, I mean, what, what I like about it is that it's different every day. And I think that's probably why I, you know, I have, I was preparing to get a life in finance. You know, that might've been a challenge about finance for me is that there might be a little monotony to it where it kind of becomes repetitive. And I love the fact that when you're talking about a live event, uh, and things change every day that, that you get to, you know, be on your toes and, and form new opinions and react on the spot. And, and that's why I love calling games because um, I, I like having to think real time and just kind of react and what I see and what I watch. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it maybe suits my personality and, and keeps it fresh. I like to travel. So I like to get around. I like to, you know, interact and kind of have exchanges. You know, one of my favorite teammates I played with Todd Simpson played with him in Arizona for a long time. I, I love, we'd sit beside each other the planes because we, he was very bright and like we'd go back and forth and kind of that witty exchanges. And I like that. And I get to do a little bit of that when, uh, when I'm working. So those are all, you know, some of the many reasons I like it as far as a pinch me moment. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if I, you know, calling my first game. I, I remember calling some games where like thinking this game is outrageously good and I feel fortunate to be part of it. Um, I remember I was calling the playoff series where Rafi Torres knocked out Marion Hosa hmm. and it was right at the red line. I was in between the benches. It was maybe four feet away from me. And I remember thinking, Oh my God, like that was one of those ones where like, Oh, God, that's, that was so heavy. Then so hard that hit. Um, that's one that kind of stands out. Did you know Rafi at all? Cause I know he's a local. I do. I, when I was in college, I would work out at a gym up in Markham. And I remember, I didn't know who Rafi Torres was, but in the squat rack beside me was this guy who was just built like a tank and he was like throwing up massive weights and he had the tattoos and he, he looked like a hockey player. And I'm like, I don't know who that guy is, but he's terrifying. And now he's probably 10 years younger than me. So, you know, by the time I got to the NHL, I kind of knew who he was, but, um, and I've talked to Rafi and he's, he's such a mild, soft-spoken guy that you'd never know that he was such a you know, a violent player at times, but, um, I, I did come to know him and, and, uh, you know, when I talk to him now, he, you know, he still expresses remorse about some of those things. But, um, I remember, I remember vividly working out of the gym when I was in Bowling Green and uh, maybe he was, he would have been, maybe it's a pro already. And, uh, and he was just such a physically imposing looking guy. I'm like, I gotta get out of here. I'm clearly yeah. not in that guy's league. 
Well, Mike, you mentioned uh, your background in finance. Uh, was there ever a part of you that, that wanted to work for a team or work for the league? Because it seems like you would have the skills to do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think when I retired, I, I wasn't really sure about like league opportunities or, or working for a team. I, you know, I, I, my initial reaction was I don't really want to be a coach. Um, kind of get on that grinding carousel again. I was kind of looking more to have a little more stability in my life. Um, mm. But I, I think almost the longer I've been out of the game, the more curious I am about working for a team or working for the league and, and kind of exploring that side of the business. Now, I love what I do. I have no plans or intention of, of, of leaving, um, you know, the media that I'm doing now. But yeah, I, I, I you know, I, I'd like to think, I, I, I'd be curious to see if I'd be any good. You know, I'd like to think I'd be good. I uh, could contribute to a, to a front office and, and help make mm-hmm. decisions. And um, I'd like to think that my, you know, comfort with numbers and um, could help, you know, in some analysis to blending, you know, a bit of the hockey mentality with maybe some of the other ways to evaluate players, you know? So, yeah, I, I do think about it probably more now than I did then. Do, do you think your background in, in your kind of educational background is why you're, one of the former players that's so comfortable talking about analytics and advanced stats and things like that? Maybe. Um, yeah, maybe. I mean, I think I've, I've always been a math guy. Like that was my, my best subject. That was my, my forte in school. And so, um, I'm fascinated by them. Um, I'm curious. Uh, I like trying to understand them, try to make sense of them. And I'm not intimidated by figuring out what they mean, how they are derived. Um, you know, how they're put together. I mean, I, I can have a, you know, a bit of a, a comfort in doing that. So, um, yeah, that probably, that is all probably part of, of why that, uh, I'm one of the guys who maybe embraces it a little bit more than others. Mike, I have, I have two questions and then we'll let you go to the cottage. Um, <laughs> one is, is hockey related. One is not. So you mentioned you're a basketball fan. Uh, what was your favorite part of the MJ doc? Um, goodness, so many. I mean, obviously I watched them everywhere. I was a Michael Jordan fanatic. Like, if you asked me where I wanted to do growing up, I'd say I want to play for the Chicago Bulls. Literally, <laughs> that would have been my number one choice. So, um, the, the thing I liked the most about it, um, you know what I kind of, I kind of respect his enduring dislike for Isaiah Thomas. <laughs> I, I just, yeah. it's just that it seems so real so many years later. Um, and I didn't like the bad boys when they played against him. So I, there was that idea about that I enjoyed. And the other one was, was it LeBradford Smith story where he yeah. said that LeBradford Smith said, you know, great game, Mike, good, whatever he said. And he used that to fuel to drop a 50 spot on the next night. And it was completely manufactured. And just <laughs> to be as great as he was and look for any ways, including things that are patently untrue, but still putting it out there publicly to push yourself to, to play harder. I, I just, it's a, it was a great little insight into how I think a lot of people's athletes minds work, maybe not to that level all the time, but yeah. I think a lot of athletes who are hyper competitive kind of could, could relate to that. Yeah. His reaction, um, when he saw the video of Gary Payton talking about him in the <laughs> yeah. finals, yeah. he was just like the glove, the glove, the glove. Yeah. I no, was okay the with the glove. glove. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did, were you too small to play basketball, like competitively? Uh, no, I was pretty good. I, by, by the time I was okay. in grade eleven and twelve, I was six feet tall. I was like, uh, you know, a city oh. all star in Scarborough, and wow. um, I somewhere in my files I had like, you know, Division three colleges like sending me letters and stuff. So I, I was, I oh. ended up being pretty good. I, I was, uh, 
I was obviously not, I mean, not so much when I was smaller, but as I grew, I, I managed to maintain my coordination and, uh, no, I, I mean, I thought I was okay. What was your game? Like shooter? No, I was a point guard uh, all the way, oh. uh, drive and dish, live at the free throw line. Cause when I was smaller, I would just go run into people and make a ton of free throws. Um, <laughs> and I was not a great outside shooter, so I didn't, but I was good enough dribbling that I could get to the basket. So I made a living just kind of getting the basket, crazy layups and, and then a ton of fouls. Okay, one last leaf question. Uh, something I was curious about. You played with Alex Kovalev in Montreal, and mm-hmm. there was a part of me like watching Neilander in the beginning of his career that reminded me a little of Kovalev, just the exceptional talent. I wonder if you played with anyone, even Kovalev, like who reminded you uh, or who reminds you of Neilander or played against. Hmm, that's a good question. Um... Yeah, that's a good question. So, so Kobe, I understand where you're going with the talent, the, the puck skills, um, yeah. the body language, which I think sometimes is William Nylander's greatest detriment, is that he doesn't look yeah. like he's upset. He doesn't Trying. look like he's he's rattled when he turns it over or they get scored against. He just looks like he's, you know, in a summer skate. Um, <laughs> so, I, you know, probably maybe no one else comes quite to mind right away like that. Um, you know, a guy that just, kind of would shrug it off, but was immensely talented. But, um, you know, I, I think I've talked about that. I thought that was some of what Jake Gardner's problem was here in Toronto. It was like, it was like hit the way he carried himself on the ice, not what he did and not how he did it, but just what he looked like while he was doing it. And, yeah. and I get it because when you watch, you watch guys like Willie play or even Jake Gardner and, you know, they, they kind of stay, skate a little upright and they, they don't have the emotional expressions on their face. Uh, of either joy or anger. And, and I think people wonder, is, is he that into it? Because he doesn't look like everyone else looks who are that into it. You know, Phil Kessel is you know, famous for being kind of strangely uh, emotional on the bench or not. So um, I, I think that is a big part of when, when I look at Willie and the stuff that he does and why some people might say, he doesn't work. And I'm like, you're wrong. He 100% works hard. Huh. You know, he just, he works different. He doesn't maybe hit guys. But he works to get the puck back. He works on the back check. He just, you know, he just looks different while doing it. But um, I think if you were to watch, like, I'm sure there's some sort of body language expert that could look into these guys and facial expressions and say, this is this is why they don't register with some people. You've been kind of one of the Nylander defenders in, in Toronto in, me, in the media. I was, a, that's, that's... I was very lonely about a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> we were there with but, you. Don't worry. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think that you're kind of the this this lone voice shouting about how good he is um because i'm incredibly inside no um i think probably <laughs> you, you, you see you, you know I, as open as i try to be you know i still will tend to see the game through the prism of my experiences and how i saw it to be played and so i wasn't a crazy physical player by any stretch and but I thought you can still be really effective. Like there, there's different ways to be effective. And there's different ways to look even when you're trying your very best. And, and um, so I looked at William Nylander and I see that. And then I also just appreciate, you know, the, the idea that he, he had a difficult year, whatever we call it, two years ago when he, when he missed camp. I don't call it a holdout. He was negotiating um, yep. because you know, he didn't score any goals and, and you're paid to produce, not paid to create zone entries and chances. And, and nobody wants to hear about shooting percentages when you have seven goals and make 7 million. I get that, 
but I also can appreciate what it's like to, to do all the right things and maybe not be rewarded due to confidence or bad luck or whatever it is. So, um, you know, I guess I see all these things and I saw all those things in him and say, you know what, I, I just, I believe he's really good. And I believe that the numbers will average themselves out because he's doing too many good things. And, um, when everyone likes to yell off the rooftops that he sucks and he's got to try and where's his pulse and where's his heart. I'm like, I don't, I don't see that. I look at what he does. I look at the numbers behind what he's doing and they all look pretty good. He's just not scoring. That won't last. And it happened. I'm surprised that that some of that shooting percentage stuff doesn't resonate with more players. Cause you know, sometimes you talk to former players and they they look at you like you're speaking a different language or something, but like, you 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 knew and you felt that you were there in the game and you knew that sometimes you had a good game and the puck just didn't go in the net. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent, hundred percent. And and I think you know it takes a certain kind of maturity for players to be. I'm never going to say not focus on the results because listen, we're in it for the results. You're in it for the goals, the wins, the points. But to balance that a little bit where you can accept, okay, I didn't get the results, but I was good at the process leading up to getting the results. And I have to take confidence and value in that. And I think maybe a little maturity kicks in to do that. But, um, you know, I think intuitively players would, would understand when you talk about that, but they just don't want to, you know, think about the numbers. Cause a lot of guys don't want to bog down their minds with numbers. They just want to go out and shoot and score. All right, Mike, Mike we're going to let you go. This has been, yeah, yeah James. It was fantastic. Yeah, it was, uh, thanks for doing this. Hopefully we can have you back again. And um, yeah, appreciate the, some of the reminiscing with us here. Yeah, anytime, my pleasure. And listen, I think at some point we're going to be talking about hockey again this summer. So um, I'll be happy to come back on when we actually have games to talk about. Awesome. Thanks so much, Mike, and uh, enjoy the cottage. I will. Have a good weekend, guys. Okay, that, well, was that was Mike Johnson. James, that was great. <laughs> you and I are just, yeah. We're not on in sync today. No, I, it, it, it's hard doing it remotely. We got to get better at it. We got to keep We got to keep grinding and figuring it out. But yeah, I mean, Mike's, you know, I got a lot of respect for, you know, I mean, he, he's being self-deprecating. He had a pretty good career. He played 660 yeah. games, almost 400 points, undrafted. You know, it's, it, it's, and then for him to transition as smoothly as he had, like he is, he is such a good color commentator. When you're watching a game, he adds such a, like another layer of depth. And not only that, but uh, I mean, my experiences with him as a person, you know, I've done some, you know, live events with him and things like that. And he's always been, um, very gracious and, 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 um, you know, good to people that are kind of maybe, lower than him in the industry and things like that. So, yeah, it's, I got nothing but good things to say about Mike. I just remember him playing with Sundin a lot um, when he first came to the league. And obviously, like, he put up some some pretty good numbers. Um, but, yeah, he's he's excellent broadcaster. I wonder, like, if, if a team at some point um, would look at someone like him just because of his background, because of the way he sees the game. Like, it feels like even the league, like, it feels like the league needs more young innovative people i mean yeah it would be great you know he could help the league even with like some of their broadcasting initiatives and kind of make more of the broadcasts the way that that he does it i mean it would be great if there were more you know maybe he could teach other color commentators or i mean there's there's probably I, i never thought about him working for a team that was a great question and it was interesting the way that he answered it because 
lots of times people say I'm happy where I am and et cetera, et cetera. But I know out in Vancouver, there's been lots of talk about Ray Ferraro being someone, you know, whenever they have those, oh, yeah. who should the next GM be or whatever, or who should the president be after Trevor Linden left? The opinion polls are always like, we want Ray Ferraro to come, you know, work for the team. And it's such an interesting idea to take someone it's such a different, it'd be such a different job working in media and broadcasting and working for a team. But I think that the fundamental thing that you need is just to be smart and curious and to be able to be humble enough that you can rely on people who are, you're working with uh, that, that know things that you don't. And I think that both Mike and, and Ray could do that if, if, if they so choose at some point to, to the detriment of the broadcast. I mean, it would be a shame for us to lose kind of what they bring to, to watching games. It's happened in other sports. Like it's not uncommon. Like Steve Kerr was a commentator on TNT and he was amazing at it. Uh, and then he became, then he got all these job offers, the Knicks, and then he chose to, to go to Golden State. And obviously he's been like a tremendous success in Golden State. So it's not like crazy. I mean, Pierre Maguire had been in the running for a bunch of jobs, um, GM jobs. Yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting. Uh, any of the stuff with the league coming back that you want to discuss before we wrap? Well, I mean, yeah, we should talk about that briefly. I mean, it, it sounds like they're going to do a 2014 format, which I don't like because they're including some teams that had no chance of making the playoffs. And now all of a sudden they're in a playoff format. They're talking about those teams being in a five-game series, and you, you get some team like Montreal or Chicago or the Rangers, if they eliminate yeah. one of the really good teams, like imagine if Pittsburgh, I know it's unlikely, but imagine if Pittsburgh, you know, they were at whatever it was, 90-some percent chance of making the playoffs, they get eliminated in this plan thing because for revenue reasons, they wanted to include Montreal, like it just, it doesn't sit right with me, and the league needs to think about the integrity of of the playoffs a little bit more than they are. They had played 85% of the season. You got to try and whatever format you come up with has to kind of mimic the those results and respect those results in terms of setting the playoff bracket. So they need to do like a 2021 20, team playoff. I know that's an awkward number, but maybe you have an extra play in or something. Only the teams that had a 20% chance or better chance of making the playoffs get to be part of it. And you need to, like a team like the Leafs, I'm not just saying this because this is a Leafs podcast. A team like the Leafs would get screwed in this format. They would really, like, they had, what were the Leafs at? Like an 80 plus percent chance of making the playoffs? Like, they were going to make the playoffs. They were going to get in. Now, all of a sudden, they get this play-in game against a really good team. It looks like probably Columbus. And they might not make the actual playoffs. They might just get this play-in game. And I don't think that that's right. And I think the league needs to think long and hard before they do that. And they can't just do it for revenue reasons. But... I'm sure they're looking at it and the TV networks are really hurting and they're going to owe the league's going to owe money back to the TV networks if they don't play more games. And, and that's the tough spot that they're in, but they got to really balance the integrity of everything better than they have been. It's a really good point. I, I haven't thought too deeply about um, any of this is, is there no, what would be the impetus not to do something like play in games or play in series for those teams that were unlikely to make the playoffs or right on the edge, like we're, I'm not talking the Leafs or Columbus, like maybe those, do you know what, I'm, do you know what I mean? Those yeah, teams yeah. that, why not, like what would be the reason not to do that just to ensure that teams like Toronto, Carolina, even Pittsburgh, like are better insulated? It's just the logistics. It's, it's, 
they're they're trying to find a way. I mean, it's they they want you just to make. To play. I, I guess I'm asking James. I'll give you a second to kind of think about it. Like you make such a good point with the Pittsburgh thing. Like Pittsburgh had 15 more points than than Montreal. Like maybe, and they're not going to get any home ice advantage. It's very, very easy to, like, they could lose game one and then suddenly, like, they're in a really tough spot. It would be very easy for them to lose that series uh, to a team that that probably wasn't even going to make the playoffs. Like, they're the, what are they, the seventh best team in the NHL this year? Like, that doesn't... Yes. I get, I get, I get that you, there's no perfect solution, but that doesn't seem fair. No, it's not right. Like it's, the, 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 what you're talking about should happen. Like they should have the Rangers in Chicago and Montreal and these teams play each other in some little tournament. And then like one of them advances. And then it's like, okay, at least this team like, you know, won a bunch of games and earned their way through. And then you have a 20. They're, they want all the teams. They're really worried about teams being rusty and not having played games. So they want all the teams to play games at the same time. And that's one of the factors that they're trying to consider. And that's why all the really good teams like, you know, Boston and Tampa and Washington that are, they're going to get buys through, uh, through the first round. They're still going to have those teams play each other in, in some sort of a format because there's a, there's a huge concern at the GM level that their teams are not going to be ready. And that if you have yeah. some team, like let's say Montreal goes through a whole plan process and they play like 10 games and that they're going to just be much more ready if you've got another team like say Pittsburgh sitting there waiting to play a game against them. And that that's what they're trying to balance it against. And I almost wonder if you could do, maybe it's a best of five, but you just give Pittsburgh the first game, you know, maybe, maybe Montreal has to run the table and win three in a row. And that's the only way. I don't know. I, I think they really need to think long and hard about maybe you do 21 teams. You have a one game playoff between team 21 and 20 and 21, which I think is the Rangers. And I'm not, I'm not sure who's 20, like Minnesota or something. You have a one game playoff, that team advances. Then you got your, your 20 teams and you go from there or something like that. Like that, that would probably be the most equitable way to do it. But I look at it, like look at a team like Florida, like if they look like Florida had no chance of making the playoffs and now all of a sudden they're going to be thrown in and they're going to be in a five game series and you're like, well, not no chance. I mean, they're three points. It was really low. It was, it was low though. It was, I mean, you know, their playoff chances were down around 20% or something like that. And, you know, if you get thrown into a best of five to make the playoffs, all of a sudden they jump to 50%, whereas the Leafs are going from 80. And I haven't looked at all these numbers, so like I could be off by a little bit, but the Leafs are going from 80% chance to make the playoffs down to, I mean, it's basically 50-50. They're going to beat a team like Columbus. I mean, Columbus is a good team. Columbus yeah. had tons of injuries, and that's the only reason they are where they are in the standings. They're probably going to have everybody healthy in time for the playoffs. It just, it doesn't seem right. And then you say you win that five-game series against Columbus, and then all you get Boston in not even in round two, in round one. I mean, it's, I don't know. There's, it, it, the league's in a, league's in a tough position, but, um, I don't, I don't fully agree with what they've decided on. Hmm. Do you like the, the idea of doing best of seven for the, the entire playoffs? Are you surprised? Like, it's not some best of fives? I think if you have time to do it, you do best of seven just because best of five, there's a lot more randomness involved and, hmm. I think, and just like to match with tradition and, and everything like that. I mean, the other thing they need to do, Jonas, is they need to reseed the tournament as it moves along. Because if you look at it, they were talking about doing this right. bracketed and not reseeding. And then you could end up in a situation where, let's say Montreal knocks off Pittsburgh. Then all of a sudden the next team, you know, is going to get Montreal that doesn't particularly deserve it. Whereas the highest seeded team should get Montreal and et cetera, et cetera. Like they need to, 
they need to reestablish what the seating is. They need to reestablish what the plan looks like, and they need to make it fair the whole way through. And, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm sure the league would say, like, all of these things are way less concerning than kind of the health and safety and all those things. And, of course, like, we agree with that. We're just trying to figure out what the best way forward is for in terms of the playoff format. All right. Well, you've given me some food for thought. Um, anything else you want to get to? I think next week we're, we're going to do discuss the story you wrote on Jeff Finger. Uh, we'll get into some of the stuff that we've written recently. Uh, I don't want to cram that in here. Um, but anything else that comes to mind before we head out? Yeah. I mean, just, I encourage people to, if you're not subscribed to subscribe and check out our stuff, you know, we appreciate the support. Uh, you go to the athletic.com slash leaf report for a discount and, uh, you know, read some of the stories that we've been working on. I think we've had some really strong stuff the last couple of weeks and, you know, the, the Jeff Finger story you wrote about Jim Pagliafito. Um, Josh Cloak has done some really excellent work the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of the prospect stories he's been doing. I feel like we're working exceptionally hard and I'm really proud of the content that we've had. And, you know, I definitely appreciate the, you know, all the nice comments that we've been getting about it. So thanks for reading. All right. Well, James, continue to stay safe. Try to get some sun. It's really nice outside. Um, I got to get some exercise, man. I was looking, I have this thing that tracks like my, how many steps I take a day and and my weight and whatever. And it's like, this is like going the complete wrong direction. I don't know about you, but (laughs) like, I gotta, I just find I'm working. And then when I'm done work, I, the kids are here and they're not, you know, they're never at daycare or school or whatever. And it's just like, I'm just in this merry-go-round where there's no time for me to do anything other than that so i run quite a bit and the streets are like empty so i'm just running in the middle of the road i gotta start running great and at some point you and i are gonna have a race and i have to get myself in i gotta get myself in much better shape in order to do it so okay well i haven't done well well actually i was cheated in my one race so i would race you on like a course like we would go to a track like that's i ran track in high school it's a long time ago, but like at one point I could run. I, 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 it'd be interesting to see if I can get get back there. All right. Well, we will talk next week. Um, stay safe. Enjoy the weekend. Thank you to everyone for listening and uh, keep grinding. Keep grinding.